You are listening to the Tech Chef Podcast, episode number 37, December 22nd, 2020. This show is produced in partnership with Hospitality Technology and Restaurant Technology Network. Smarter hotels, smarter restaurants. Hi, this is John Rivers, CEO of the Four Rivers Restaurant Group. I'm here today with Skip on the Tech Chef podcast doing a holiday special. And if you stay afterwards, you're going to have the opportunity to hear Skip sing some of his very favorite Christmas holiday songs. So hold on tight and let's grab and jump into the sleigh and get ready for our holiday special. Off-premise strategy, business continuity. A taste test of restaurant technology, drive-through or curbside, mobile apps or AI. It's all on the menu, cooking up for the day. It's a recipe for success. You're in good hands with a tech chef. Make a plan to be your best. Strategize with the tech chef. Well, greetings, my friends, and welcome back to this week's edition of The Tech Chef. Thank you for downloading and listening today. And for those of you listening for the very first time, I want to extend a very special welcome to you. The Tech Chef is a weekly show about restaurant, hotel, and hospitality technology hosted by yours truly, Skip Kimple, and it is a weekly insight into our industry from a technology perspective. Thanks to all of you. This show has quickly become one of the hottest hospitality podcasts out there with thousands of listeners from over 50 countries. Now, while I just mentioned that this show is driven by industry technology topics, today is a little step out of the ordinary as we begin to finish out this year. When I started planning a few months ago about who I wanted on this show for my Christmas episode, I couldn't think of any person I would rather join me more than John Rivers, the founder and CEO of 4R Restaurant Group, more well known under the Four Rivers Barbecue name. And just by coincidence, he also happens to be my boss and my fearless leader. In 2009, John created his first concept, Four Rivers Smokehouse, which quickly became one of the fastest growing restaurants in the Southeast. With 15 locations, Four Rivers Smokehouse, and his second and third concepts, the Southern-inspired Coop and the Mexican-themed Cantina at Disney Springs have garnered national recognition. Achieving national acclaim over the course of a decade, Four Rivers has been recognized as the number one barbecue restaurant chain in the country by MSN, number one barbecue restaurant in South and Southern Living, and one of the top five breakfast brands by Nation's Restaurant News, among others. Additionally, John has been named one of the Power 20 leaders in the restaurant industry by Restaurant Business, included among Orlando Magazine's 50 Most Powerful 15 to Watch, and twice named a finalist for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award. John has twice been invited to cook at the prestigious James Beard House in New York City and has participated at Food Network South Beach Wine and Food Festival for the last eight years. He has appeared on numerous television shows and has been featured in national publications including Food and Wine, Bon Appetit, MSN, USA Today, Business Insider, and Cooking Light. You have all heard me talk multiple times about this amazing company and this very electric brand. I am hoping that after today, you will begin to understand the passion and success behind what it is today. And make sure you stick to the end of the interview as John has a very special holiday recipe to share with you. John, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love for you to give us a little bit of a background and your history prior to becoming a restaurateur? Well, Skip, first, thanks so much for having me on the show. I, I appreciate it greatly. And uh, it's, a, it's a funny story that was never intended, but it, I have to say it was always in my heart. When I grew up, I loved food, you know, hence my physique, <laughs> as you can see me today, um, and loved cooking. 
even when I was just a little boy, the, the first job I ever wanted to have was um, actually working in restaurants. And I thought I was going in to become a cook and I became a dishwasher and uh, actually learned more lessons than that than I, I think I ever could have of the value of working and, and uh, working toward a goal and a dream. And, and quite frankly, the importance of starting at the bottom of something and working your way up. Well, one thing led to another. And actually, when I came out of college, even though I, I worked my way all the way through high school and all the way through college, paying for it myself by working in restaurants the whole time, the great irony is, what was that, probably eight, nine years? Never once, Skip, did I ever have the opportunity to actually cook in any of the restaurants that I ever worked in. I was always a waiter or busboy or, like I said, dishwasher when I started or went into management, but I never actually had to cook. And the great irony is a joke. I had to wait what, almost 30 years later to open my own dang restaurant so I could actually get into the kitchen and, and cook. But I loved it. It was a passion. It was something that God put in my heart from the very first time that I can remember being a kid. But I also love business. And, and, and I love the aspects of business, of working with people, and creating, um, whenever we build something new, um, especially a, a new idea, a new concept, I get very excited about that. And for whatever reason, my first path took me down into the business world where I was blessed with a 20 year career. I loved healthcare because I love taking care of people. And I spent 20 years in healthcare until one day I actually had the opportunity to build a large, be a part of a building, a large company that went public, um, that we ultimately sold. And I was blessed but to be able to retire from that. Toward the tail end of that, okay, now I had cooked and cooked and cooked all these years, all right? Matter of fact, I grew, up, um, I grew up here in Florida where we had a certain definition of what barbecue was, especially back in the 70s and 80s, and it was pork, you know, and it was, it was pulled pork and it was ribs. And if you ever did have beef <laughs> growing up in Florida, you know, those, those years, it was not good. It was definitely dry, um, secondary product that you had to come into. So when I graduated college and moved out to Texas, I always say I met the two loves of my life. My beautiful wife, Monica, who are still married, she still puts up with me to this very day, to brisket. And I met brisket through my wife at a holiday of Thanksgiving, where it was the first time I got to meet all of their family. And now she had introduced me because all of her family, especially the boys, okay, they're they're hunters and they're barbecue guys and they, everybody has a smoker when they're born. I'm pretty much convinced in Texas. And she introduced me as being one of them. You know, he loves barbecue. He loves to cook and this and that. So we sit down at the Thanksgiving dinner table and on the table, there is this beautiful smoked turkey and next to it is this black piece of meat. And I made the mistake. I looked at them and I said, wow, what is that? <laughs> I had no clue that that's the holy grail of not just barbecue, but Texas barbecue itself. And boy, I just caught all kind of grief. And these guys are my age and a little bit older. Well, a few beers into this, when all this is happening, testosterone takes over and ego has a big piece of this too. And I look at them and I say, I'll tell you what, Fellas, I said, I'm going to learn how to smoke this brisket thing of yours better than any Texan that I've ever met. Now, at that time, Skip, I didn't even own a smoker. <laughs> I had never smoked before. And this just shows you how dang stubborn I am. From the time that I left there, it took me 18 years, literally, 18 years of playing around learning how to smoke, actually built my own smokers, built tubes between each one. I would track the temperature change of, of how smoke would actually move. And during those 18 years, I was also growing in my healthcare career. I got to go around the country and every city that I would go to, I would find a barbecue place. And I would talk to the, the pit master and they would bring me back and I was just learning all these tips and I'd bring it back and bring it back. And little did I know too, that brisket of, of all the cuts, be it primal or, or minor cuts, is the hardest one to smoke. And so all these years, I learned how to do pulled pork. I learned how to do ribs. I learned how to do burn-ins. learned how to do all these things. And it took me forever to get that brisket down. But I tell you what, the moment, the day, the day that I did, and I was so happy and excited about it, literally the next week, I got on an airplane I brought, I smoked a smoke, a brisket the night, that night before, put it hot into one of those big, you know, those Costco bags, 
flew all the way to Texas, and I made them all sit down and eat it, and they all agreed. They wouldn't say it was better than anything they've had, but I did it. Yeah, I was very, very close. Wow, that I've never actually heard that story, so thank you for telling that. So how does that go back into, um, you know, you, you were in this corporate world, you had this love for barbecuing, but how does, and smoking, how does that relate into how Four Rivers was formed and you know, how did you leave your corporate world and go into the restaurant world? Sure, you know that's a it's a it's a great um, segue into a, a bigger message that I very much believe in, and that bigger message is that each one of us is born uh, with a purpose. You know, we are given specific gifts that differentiate us versus any the people that we're standing next to, the people that we meet, and it's our mission in life to find out what that purpose is to figure it out and then have the courage to pursue it i always tell people whatever they're working you know if you're not doing something you're passionate about bring passion into what you're doing you want to change your environment and change your setting and change the way that you're looking at things it starts with you the way that you are acting about it. And if you can bring passion into it, it's amazing how fast your circumstances will change, no matter how negative they are. And the other piece of that is if you're not doing, if you can't get passionate about it, go do something different. And so many people get stuck because they're comfortable or they're scared about stepping into something that, you know, that they don't have all the details to and don't know all the answers to. That's where sometimes many of us will actually find life. Now, it's funny. Now, all these years in healthcare, okay, what did the story I just told you, how much time did I actually spend pursuing a passion and a dream that I didn't even know that I had, but it was so apparent. I just loved to cook. And I was spending years and years and years developing recipes. And, you know, looking back on it, you kind of say, wow, it was so evident. But when you're going through it, that's not always the case. Well, sometimes something has to happen in your life to kind of change your trajectory, okay? And pray that it's a positive, but it's not always positive. Sometimes it's negative, but sometimes it's, that's what's needed to move you to what that purpose is. Well, well, mine came in. It was a phone call. It was back in 2005, and it came on my direct line on my desk, which only maybe less than 10 people knew what that number was. Everything else went through my assistant. That would screen the calls. Which was at your corporate environment. Back in my corporate environment. And this call came through, and I'll never forget this this voice in this call, and it was a lady, and she was crying. And I remember her saying, Mr. Rivers, Mr. Rivers, I am so sorry to hear about your daughter. Now, my daughter Cameron was in kindergarten at the time, and I said, what happened? What's wrong with Cammie? And she said, well, her tumor or terminal brain tumor. And I remember hanging up the phone and being so shaken up. I called Monica, and it took me, she didn't pick up the call, so it took about 10 minutes to get a hold of her. But during that 10 minutes, I realized what it must be like to be going through life with somebody that you love, okay, going through something that no matter, it doesn't matter your title, it doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter how much influence you have, none of that is going to change that environment and that situation that you're facing. And, and, and two, to have somebody that you truly love going through that, it put life in a very different perspective for me. Well, Monica got the call, and she called me back, and, and thank God, literally, it wasn't my daughter Cameron. But those 10 minutes shook me up so much. I remember saying to Monica, we're going to do something. And she said, what are you talking about? What are we going to do? And, and I didn't know. But I felt that push on my heart that now that I know what this is like to stand in that father's shoes, we're going to help them. And uh, it took us about a week to find out who this little girl was. Now, here's a really odd thing about it, Scott. This little girl, her name was Megan, okay? She wasn't in Cameron's class. They didn't go to the same school. They didn't even live in the same neighborhood. There was, there was no connection whatsoever to this family, Okay. And I'll tell you this, to this day, we don't know who made that phone call to me. They never identified themselves, and I was so shaken up, I didn't ask who it was. But I know the call was intended for me, because the words I remember were, Mr. Rivers, Mr. Rivers, I'm so sorry to hear about your daughter. 
had that phone call, that had that mistaken phone call not come to my desk that day, I likely would have never stepped into my passion and be doing what I'm doing today. That was my little shakeup. That shakeup led to a, a barbecue fundraiser for little Megan at her church. Now, up to this point, I'd only cooked in my backyard. All those years of R&D, maybe 10 people, 20 people for a football game, and I promise you it didn't always come out good <laughs> by any means. So I, I told the parents, I said, you just pick a date, and we'll do a barbecue at your church. You invite anybody that you want to. I'll take care of everything. They said, that's great. They called back and said, it needs to be 10 days from now because little Megan's going to go into her next chemotherapy um, regimen. And I said, no problem at all. I got a you know, little egg out back. I got a smoker. And I said, you know, I'll throw on some butts so we'll be in great shape. As the 10 days progressed, the RSVP started coming in. We ended up at 450 people, Skip, RSVP'd for this. Now, I'm running a, a multi-billion dollar business from my desk, okay? That, I'm, I'm a weekend warrior on the smoker, and that's about it. I had no idea how to cook for that many people and how many to store it. Where we're gonna, I didn't have the equipment to do any of that whatsoever. And nobody knew who you were as far as reputation as barbecue. They, they no. didn't know what you did. No, I'm a healthcare executive. <laughs> and, 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 uh, step into this, and I'll tell you what, that's when God moved. People started showing up out of the woodwork. And I got a, a sense of what it really means to be a community servant, you know, which ultimately shaped who we are today at Four Rivers because everybody started lining up. And, and I got a phone call from Monica one day, and I was sitting at my desk, and she says, you better come home. And I said, why? What's wrong? She says, oh, you'll see when you get here. I go home. I go to turn into my driveway, and I had to screech on the brakes, Okay. In my driveway, you ever seen these huge smokers that are on trailers, the big tubular ones? Oh, yes, yeah. In my driveway was one that was parked, okay, that was twice as long as this room. And honest to goodness, it had a yellow sticky on it. And the yellow sticky said, hey, John, we've not met. I heard you need this. Call, call me when you need me to pick it up. <laughs> and everything started falling into place like that. Well, the 10 days came. We cooked for the, you know, 400, fed 450 people. We raised lots of money for this little girl, and nobody got sick <laughs> in the process of it. But that night, I'll never forget, I was, I was wiped. You know, you know, we know what it's like when you go from a desk job to restaurant work, okay? It is night and day. I was lying on the ground, and Monica comes up to me, and she's, she's you know, kind of poking me, and she says, you okay there, big guy? And I, and I said, my eyes were closed. I said, oh, my God. I said, I feel so alive. And she says, you don't look so alive. I said, no, no, no. I said, I want to do this. And I couldn't put my hands on it. But you know what it was? It was the first time ever, okay, in 40-some-odd years of my life that I lined up my passion, you know, that gift that God gave me, okay, with my actions, my occupation, okay, to help other people. And when you do those three, when you do what you were meant to be doing, Okay, all right. As your job, as your occupation, is what you do. When you're, you imagine being in a job where every day you just love what you're doing, okay? and you're doing it for a greater purpose. Anybody can make money. Yeah, I can go get a job down at the grocery store. I'll make money. Okay, but to be able to impact lives with that gift that you've been given, that was a turning moment for me. And at that point, for the next four years, out of our garage, we ran what we called our barbecue ministry. So anytime kids or schools or churches needed money, if I was so blessed, I'd give them money. But a lot of times I said, hey, can I pull out my smoker? How about we do a fundraiser at your church or your school and all the money will go back to them? And we did that year after year after year. And of those four years, something happened in the middle. When I was going to work Monday through Friday and being corporate John, I was one way, right? I was one type of John. On the weekends, when I was doing my ministry work, I was a completely different person. And that person was alive. And that person was full of hope and energy. And I'm going to, I can feed a thousand people. No problem. I'll tackle it. And the disparity between those two people became so great, it, I felt I was lying, living a lie. And I couldn't do it. Even to the employer who I was working for, I felt like I wasn't, my heart wasn't there anymore. And you know what I did? I retired. I quit. And 
What did your wife have to say at that point? She asked me <laughs> the same question, Skip, that uh, my boss asked. Well, what are you going to do? And I had the same answer. I don't know. But you know what I learned? You know, looking back at it, sometimes when you're in the wrong situation, okay, in order for you to get to the right situation, some of the first the hardest steps sometimes you might have to take is take yourself out of that wrong situation first. Even if you don't know where that next situation is, if you think about it, if you're in a bad relationship with somebody and you stay in that bad relationship, you think you're going to find the, the right relationship? No. You have to take yourself out of it, even if it means moving out of comfort and funds and that little comfortable lifestyle that you know complacency is just such a, a demon that holds us to it and it holds us back. It's when, we're, when we, we have the courage to step into the unknown and move out of that comfort zone that that's when we grow. And the longer we stay in that comfort zone, you don't grow. And sometimes you get stuck and you, and you don't move at all. I stepped out of it. And had I not stepped out of it, had I not responded to that phone call, quite frankly, had that phone call never come in, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. So how did that whole turn of events you know, you're, you're doing these, these fundraisers for people in need. How did that turn into a business? Obviously, um, at some point you realized, hey, there is some money to be made here. But what, what was that transition like? <laughs> you met my wife, Monica, right? Yeah, course, Okay, you yes. know her, my, my boss. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, that last year in the garage, Skip, we served over 40,000 people in the ministry. Now, you translate that to uh, a wife who was trying to keep a hold of a house, that we brand new house that we just built, and she says, you, you know, get this out of here, which was, uh, we needed to. We needed to. One, we weren't licensed, we weren't in a facility, and we were, li- we were pulling trucks up literally and just making a complete mess of a, a beautiful house. So the impetus behind it was, let's go build uh, a commissary. Did you ever go to our first location? Did you ever see it? I have not seen that, no. Oh, I'll drive you by sometime. It was a, a Just Breaks, okay, on Fairbanks. And it was, lapidly. it was really in a bad shape building, okay? It was closed. It had been closed for, for a long, long time. And my thought was, well, you know what? If I'm going to build a commissary to run the ministry out of, why don't we use the act of building it as part of the ministry, okay? Why don't we put money back into the community and beautify you know, this place. Now, I had launched drugs all over the world. All right? I had la- I'd built pharmacies in almost every state in the country. Okay? And I look at this little 1,800-square-foot building, and I've said to myself, how difficult can it be to make this a little commissary that we can run our ministry out of? I had no clue, Skip, what I was getting into. Matter of fact, I still have the original budget okay, from our contractor. It was $181,000, and it was supposed to take maybe three months to build out. Okay? Six and a half months into the project, over, a, goodness gracious, a half a million dollars of our family capital spent, okay? My contractor walks off the job, okay? And, by the way, this was 2009, in the middle of the economic collapse. So all of our investments, everything we had was underwater. The house, big house that we just built, we were, the day we moved in, we were, under, we were underwater on that. For the first time in our, our life, okay, Monica and I were actually down to 60 days of cash. 60 days and didn't know how to get out. And you kind of look back and like, wait a minute. How do I go from, you know, president of a, a $2.5 billion company, okay, to living down to 60 days of cash, especially when I stepped out in faith and stepped into my passion thinking I was doing this to help other people. And, oh, on top of all this, Everybody, Skip, everybody was telling me what a mistake I was making. Going into the restaurant industry, especially in 2009, okay? Restaurants in in particular, you know, one out of what, seven of them don't make it, okay? And then to say that I'm going to build a a barbecue place that's going to serve brisket in Florida. And it's commonplace today, but back even 11 years ago in 2009, it was not commonplace. Matter of fact, Smoky Bones had just collapsed um, under Darden, Okay, and, and falling apart. And nobody was doing it, not only just brisket, but the service style that I wanted to do. I wanted to make it fast casual. 
and I wanted to put the food in front of the people, and I wanted to interact with every single guest that was coming in, everybody, every consultant, every wholesaler, every attorney, account, telling us the mistakes that we were making. Well, I think that kind of plays into the core values of the company that, that you ended up creating and what makes Four Rivers so special, what attracted me to the company. If you can speak a little bit about you know, how that evolved and what you really wanted the company to be. Well, you know, had we had not gone through those challenges, okay, and come out of those, had we not been so determined and persevere, those challenges ultimately is what shaped the culture of our business. We never gave up faith. We never gave up hope. And I say we, it was not just me. I want to make that really clear. The people, there's some people that are still here with us today, Jeff and Kristen and others, they were in the foxhole with me. And we didn't know, we certainly didn't know where this is going to look like 11 years ago. Okay, we were just trying to figure out how do we get this thing open and um, not run out of money and try to hire people. And our, shoot, our projection for that first year was uh, if we did a half a million dollars in sales, wow, wouldn't that be just utterly amazing? And we're designing, literally, we're designing the, fr- the front line that exists today on my back porch with scotch tape on a table, lining everything out. But it was that willingness to never be overcome with fear or doubt. We never, ever doubted we would get through this. And that mindset has transpired and that that culture has been our culture today has been built around that absolute determination no matter what challenge we're going to face we are going to overcome it and you play that forward to today to covid uh, that was part of my discussion later on in this conversation you know when i i came back from a, a convention in march in las vegas March 13th, 14th, something like that. And we, we, this day I got back, we sat in this office because COVID had become a pandemic and we were trying to figure out as a company, how do we deal with that? And I think some of the core principles of what you were just talking about, <laughs> I mean, it, it relates back to me now. You're, you're reflecting upon the words that you just said of, you know, we are going to do it. We are going to make sure that A, we take care of our people um, I'll never forget when you said, and I continuously repeat that, when you said, you know, when this is over with, we are, A, going to be in a better position than when we went into this, when we went into COVID. And number two, we are going to have a company for people to come back to if we have to let anybody go. And you've held true to those words. And I think those have been the mantra of, of all of the senior management here to make sure that that's true. And we always had that inspiration and that motive from that point on. And we had those weekly conferences, status updates, two times a week sometimes, to make sure that we are staying on track and staying true to our word um, to make sure that we are making sure this, the public was safe and our team members, foremost, were safe as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you can't give up hope. You know, a, a dream and a potential outcome will always be a potential outcome as long as you have hope for it. And as long as you're willing to fight for it, I'll tell you what, and that's what I, I couldn't have been more proud of our team, and you included, Skip. <laughs> Everybody out there, you know, we think about the crazy stuff we had to do. You know, our business was in threat. You know, our brand that we had put our heart and soul into was in legitimate threat of going out of business. And that, that motivation became the impetus to so many of the different creative thoughts that came out that not only got us through the epidemic, the pandemic, but it also, it it created new models for us that we would never even be thinking about had we not gone through that. And you know what happened too? Did you notice from the team from the beginning to the end? You know, we remember the first meeting that we had, I don't know, I still have the paper, we drew out three columns and we said, okay, here's what we can do today. If it gets worse, this is what we may have to do. And if it really gets crazy, oh man, this is what we have to do. And do you remember less than a week later, we were in column three. I do remember that. And it, it set the mindset for the team. We're going to move fast. We're not going to talk. We're not going to focus on why we can't do things. We said, let's create a virtual drive through at every location. You know, the team said, what? And then they said, okay. 
and they did it. And every location that we went to, there were wires all over the place. There were POSs in the parking lots, but you know, we did it. They did it and we survived. And not only did we survive, and, and I contend the same thing, you know, we said we will come out of this better than we were going into it because of the fight, because of the forced improvements, because of the new way that we would be forced to look at our business and the marketplace, we would have never gotten to the place that we are today without the fight and the emergency that we had to go through. Yeah, I think the team members involved in the entire process, it showed the dedication that we had to fight the good fight to make sure that everything we could do, we would do to make it happen. And it wasn't always making a decision at a table and then you know, pushing that down to the team members at the restaurant. We listened to the team members, you know, what, what works, what doesn't work, you know, sometimes old school, sometimes, um, <laughs> sometimes no technology was the best approach. And we were all willing to listen to the feedback and really do what we needed to do. But I think this also plays into a very interesting time in the foundation for Roots. And I think this is a perfect opportunity to talk about that. So you have this foundation for Roots Foundation, which I will I, I want to go into right now, but that had a big play during the COVID period in regards to how we help the community and maybe how it helped the company as well. So maybe you can talk about, first of all, what what is the Four Roots Foundation? Because I know you have such passion for it. Oh. Well, the, the foundation, the Four Rivers Foundation, was created when we really um, organized all of our, I call them ministry work, but anytime that we put funds back into the community, which has always been the foundation and the basis of how we've created this business and treated each market and grown. We created the foundation when we formalized that process because now we had other organizations also wanting to contribute. They, they believed in what we were doing and wanted to, to accelerate that growth of it. For Roots is the, the largest single um, ambitious program <laughs> that we dream that uh, we've ever taken on. And, you know, that, that dream, I went back to the first presentation of a, a farm idea of feeding the community. You know how long ago that was? It was in 2015, Scott. August 26 in 2015 was the first time we asked the Department of Agriculture to come down. We met over in East End Market, and, we, and I put together this crazy thing, and people were looking at us. But it, that was the impetus behind, you know, creating what today now, as I look on the walls, I'm looking at the, the prints and the drawings of, you know, a, an urban farm campus that we are so fortunate to be building. And uh, we'll bring on students from uh, grade school to high school to junior colleges all the way up to the universities and teach them about food and growing systems and the importance of agriculture and the importance of the relationship that we're supposed to have as, as a, a humankind in the land. And that harmony that we are intended to exist between the two two parties, we have to take care of the land as much as the land takes care of us. And when we don't, we're seeing that breakdown, which we are experiencing. I'm not talking around the world. If we just look in our own backyards today, I have one out of five of my students in public school systems living in food insecurity, which means the only food they eat is when they're at school itself. And when they go home, there's not a, a guaranteed meal. And the weekends, there's not a guaranteed meal. And then you take a look further beyond that, you've got 330 farmers in the United States today, on average, that lose their property every week. And the food, the produce that you just ate today, okay, on average in the United States, traveled 1,872 miles to get to our plate. And you take a look at that, and the on top of the crowning piece for me, remember I got 20% of my kids not eating, okay? In the state of Florida alone, okay, on an annual basis, there is just shy of 1 billion pounds of produce that is grown by our wonderful local farmers that never makes it to its intended use, that goes to waste, that gets tilled under, goes into landfills, and that was pre-COVID numbers. Post-COVID, it's up exponentially even higher. You take a look at all of that, and it becomes very evident. We've got a broken food system. Now, remember, we're in the restaurant business, right? 
And part of the restaurant business is you like to serve people. You like to feed them. You know, you feed their you feed their stomach and you feed their soul. Okay, when you do that, they will grow. Well, here it is in my own backyard, my community, where people aren't being fed. And when they're not being fed, all right, that harmony is broken and things will start to break down. And that's exactly what's happened. So we're designing the, the Four Roots Farm Campus to bring people together to learn about all those important aspects about the food system and the food cycle in hopes that they would come onto our campus and leave inspired, leave inspired either to change their diet or to pursue produce that's grown in a responsible, sustainable uh, fashion or to support local agriculture or support, support local businesses and stop bringing things in from other countries and across the country just to feed ourselves here. There are so many little things that we can do in our life and in, in, in our home today to make a difference in the local food system. And my, insp- my job is to inspire people, whether they do it with us or they do it somewhere else, just to make those changes. So it is an amazing plan that we've seen. I can't wait for it to come to fruition. But I think one of the most immediate effects that people can relate to was during COVID with the launch of Feed the Need program. And we, do you know the number today to how many meals that we have served individual? It's a little over 1.6 million meals now. Since March. Since March on a pivot. <laughs> I, I remember the call. I remember shortly into COVID. I remember the marketing team calling me saying, John wants to create this site. This is the, this is the goal. This is the, what we're trying to do. How do we do it? How do we do it quickly and get it up and running next week? And somehow you, you started to align your resources through your connections with the state, with um, municipalities, uh, and create this, this infrastructure and this system to be able to accomplish these amazing things. Maybe you can speak more about what Feed the Need actually did and is still doing for our communities and our states today. You know, one of the most impactful things about COVID-19, it did two things. It brought to light the need in the marketplace, you know, hunger and people not getting food and really those that were dependent on a school system in order to eat. But what it also did, okay, it created a common threat for the entire community, for the entire world, okay? That threat was COVID-19. And when people are all fighting on the same team, amazing things can happen. You take that out of it, we've all got our own battles and we all got our own priorities. But now all of a sudden, everyone's facing the same challenge. And that's when you see um, the greatest momentous changes happening in a, in a culture and in a marketplace. Well, in this particular case, we said, you know what? We are going to pivot, right? All of our assets are shut down, specifically in our catering and everything else. What's mission to line that we can help and make a difference? And, and, and part of that too, Skip, is from an organizational perspective, by creating something that we could rally behind, that was mission to line to helping people and brought our company together closer. We used COVID-19 as that motivator, not only to make changes and make improvements, but to also bring the team in the, and solidify, galvanize the culture that we built the entire organization on and actually do it in a demonstrative manner by going out to the community and helping people. And also, and, I, and just, just like Four Rivers, we didn't know what the plan was. And we had the, we had the inspiration and then we had the courage to move on it. And that inspiration was when we learned that those students who were at spring break, okay, were not going to come back to school, if you remember that, back in March, okay, and that translated, wait a minute, how are they going to get their food? And, you know, and, and all the different uh, counties had programs. They were going to roll student meals out, and the Department of Agriculture approved it for uh, uh, summer food meals to be started. Well, that sounds great, but what happens in, in every county you have gaps, okay? Gaps where either the meals are not reaching those students. Like in this case, we found out there were a number of students living in the homeless center, okay? Or you've got gaps, huge buckets of students that live, um, parents are, are not there or they're working. They don't have transportation to the schools where their meals are being distributed. So 
through our partnership and our commitment to OCPS and to education, we learned about those and we made the offer to the superintendent, Barbara Jenkins. You know, we've got all these people <laughs> that are, you know, need jobs and we have all these resources, you know, catering, we got an 8,000 square foot catering kitchen. I got all these vans, all these vehicles, you know, can we help you fill those gaps? And then through our relationship with the Department of Ag, Nikki Freed stepped in, Commissioner Freed did. She got us approved like in, in a matter of days to become a vendor and a sponsor for these meals. And we went to action. And the intent was just let's just fill these gaps where we've identified. And there were only three. If you remember back those first couple of weeks, there were three feeding sites that we were uh, feeding students. Okay. Well, a couple things happened. When we were feeding the students, imagine a car pulling up. It's got six people in it. Brothers, sisters, aunts, grandmas, <laughs> a lot of times. But only one person's going to be fed. And that's the student because they're the only ones that's reimbursed. And we looked at it and I said, this isn't right. What about all the other people that are hungry? We've got to do something about this. We stepped in and we called all of our restaurant friends all around the state. I remember shot out an email to, I don't know, three, 400 people. I said, hey, and this is when all the restaurants were being shut down. If you have excess, excess food, please don't let it go to waste. You know, we'll come pick it up and we'll turn it into meals. And we called them family meals. And we brought those food, that food in and we used it to feed the other five people in the car. And you should see them light up when you give them that food. And, and then we started finding out, not only because restaurants ran out of food, all these farmers all this excess produce. And just remember the articles and the pictures that you saw of stuff that was getting put into landfills and thrown away? We said, wait a minute, can't we take in all this excess produce, create jobs for people who are out of work to make turn that produce into meals, and then use those people and that produce to actually feed the people that were hungry? And it was a big closed-loop system, and it just took off. And at the end of it, we are feeding people in 47 sites around the entire state in six different counties, making up that 1.6 million meals. And we rescued over 600,000 pounds of produce that would have otherwise gone to waste. And we employed 322 people in the process of it. I look back. I mean, that was a closed loop system. It, when, when you look at, you know, hindsight, but I, I remember when, we had the opportunity to move into this uh, warehouse, this massive warehouse. How many square feet is that? Oh, my gosh. It's, what, 10,000, 12,000 square feet? Right. I'm sitting there thinking, <laughs> <laughs> all right, what, what's, you know, what's real, realistically, what are we ever going to do with this? Um, it's amazing how God works in our lives and within um, how we work as a business and, and how he wants us to operate because look at what we've done with that warehouse. Through these needs, we had the facilities to be able to bring in the food, store it, and then have this delivery system back to the community. I mean, just reflecting upon it, I, I'm blown away every time I really, I really think about it. I remember the day I walked back into the warehouse when the shelving was in place, which was which was given to us just by Walmart. By Walmart, just yep. these amazing things that happened. Yep to to really facilitate all of this. I mean, it just blows me away when you really think about it. You know, the, the important thing about that, Skip, is you don't have to know all the details. You don't have to know the full-blown plan for the plan to come to fruition. But what you do have to do is have to be willing to take that first step. You know, I promise you, when we started making those student meals for the first time, we had no idea we were going to have a 12,000-square-foot warehouse and have all these refrigerator trucks pulling up and, and rescuing produce from all over the state. And, and, you know, you take that same premise, and what if you play that forward a year from now? Isn't it exciting? Because we're willing to take those steps and the team now has grown so much, where, where could we possibly be a year from now? And I don't think we can even start to define what that potential is. John, our conversation has been super inspirational not only reaffirming all the positive things that have, have have happened throughout this year for us i mean there are so many negative things but i truly believe uh, when we exit 2020 we have to concentrate on the positive things because that's gonna 
that's going to um, be that our trajectory for 2021. But you know, there's a lot of restaurants out there right now that are struggling. And, you know, maybe you might have some type of advice, you know, we're looking at possibly, not necessarily within the state of Florida, but other states, additional shutdowns, COVID numbers are spiking. What, what advice might you have for other restaurants to really keep the faith and just keep plugging along to make sure that they're going to come out on the right side of this? You know, it's, I don't want to paint a utopia, okay? Because there are going to be losses throughout this process. But I will give people one encouragement that keeps me going, okay? The analogy is like a seed, okay? You're going to plant a seed in, in this bed, and you're going to plant a seed in a bed 10 feet away from it, okay? You're the sun, okay? Whichever one of those two that you focus on is going to grow, and it's going to prosper. So in our business, on a day-to-day basis, you know, I promise you, there's, there's a million challenges we're facing. You and I sitting here today, you know, when we walk out of here, there's going to be people upset. There's going to be challenges we have to overcome. But we choose to focus on the positive. And as long as we don't subscribe to the negative and let that be where we shine our light, if you shine that light on the positive seed, it's going to grow positive vines. If you share it on the negative, those weeds are going to grow. You make that determination. And, and I'm absolutely convinced, especially as you move up the chain in an organization, your outlook, your, your optimism, okay, your determination never to fail, and your push to continue to find new things, that's contagious. It's in, in, and not in a frivolous way, but in a material way. The team will subscribe to that, and they will follow suit with that, and changes will take place. You've got to be willing to pivot. You've got to be willing to pivot and think so far outside of your normal box. Do you remember when we started serving family meals of spaghetti and meatballs and lasagna? I promise you that wasn't in the playbook you know, at the beginning of this year. In our, our, But we had to go, and this is one of the most important things, too. You have to go to the customer. And you've heard us talk about this so many times this year when the customer was not willing to come to the store, when the customer needed toilet paper because they couldn't get it at the grocery store anymore, when the customer wanted the family meals brought to them so they could stay home in a self-environment, okay? We could have sat back and said, no, we're a barbecue restaurant. We serve when people come here. And you know what? We would have closed our doors. We would have failed. But we pivoted, 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 and constantly go to where the customers we're in the service industry you got to serve and that means to serve is not a selfish perspective you know it is an unselfish verb that means you are serving somebody else's needs which means you need to go to where those needs are in order to meet them so my encouragement is even as dark as it is because we were all there you know we were we were remember how much cash we were burning we were burning what nine hundred thousand dollars a week we were down to what six or seven weeks of burn rate and our company was closed, okay? And you can either focus on that or, or what our team did. We focused on the positives. We continued to pivot, and that answer did not lie in doing the same things that we were doing a week, even a week ago. You had to constantly move. Very inspirational, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted you on for this particular show. Um, this is the week of Christmas. Uh, I know Christmas is your favorite time of year. Gosh, if you could have Christmas decorations up in the office all year long, I I think you probably would. I would. Absolutely, I would. (laughs) So first of all, let me, let me ask you, what does Christmas mean to you? Why, why is it so important to you? I'm that, that's a, that's a little bit of a loaded question, but you're so passionate about it. You know, um, that's, that's a great question. It's probably just the, you know, the, the joy, you know, from childhood. Um, and not necessarily my childhood, but just seeing that joy in, in children, you know, and just the, the, the innocence of believing um, and, and believing in something that just brings joy and happiness to so many others. Um, I love that feeling, you know, and, um, you know, that's, that's the whole, quite honestly, I never thought of it this way, but that's the whole basis of our company, you know, why we're doing what we're doing. So that and, and uh, I love the food. <laughs> 
and I, I love the music. I love the whole atmosphere of Christmas. I really do. Well, since you brought up food, <laughs> <laughs> you're a well-renowned chef. Um, is there something, okay, so this is Christmas week. Is there some recipe you might be able to share with people? Because I've never done this with any other guest I've had on the show. <laughs> I've had Robert Irvine. I never asked him of this. Uh-huh. But um, gosh, I've had your food constantly for the past year and a half. I've been with this company. Is there something you can share, a recipe that uh, people might be able to make during this Christmas season? Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. You talk to people about their um, traditional Christmas dinners, which really is an interesting topic, and you will see a diversity of answers from literally uh, turkey, prime rib, to spaghetti and meatballs. Seven fish. Seven fish? That's Seven your... fish is the Italians. There you go. I mean, and it's so reflective of their heritage, which I really love that piece too. So if I were to give a, a common recipe, knowing that there's so much diversity on the night before, this is something I've suggested before because the, the Christmas morning, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily, you don't want whoever cooks in your home, be it mom or dad, be stuck in the kitchen. You know, when everyone else is opening gifts and enjoying them and everything, I'm, I'm a huge fan of a, a breakfast casserole, okay, which is basically a savory bread pudding. And the reason that I'm a fan of it is because you can prepare it the day before and let it sit overnight. So all you have to do the next morning is pop it in the oven. And you know where bread pudding came from? It's back in the old English colonial days. They, that's what they created um, to use all dried up bread. And they would simply take bread, soak it in milk, put a little herb in it or whatever else was left from the villages, and, that, and they would cook it and bake it, and that's what would make the bread pudding. So I'm a, a huge fan of a, a breakfast casserole. You just take the bread, whatever bread you like. I like a big hearty, you know, uh, like a ciabatta or something like that. And if it's stale, it's good. Because it, when it's stale, it's going to soak up more juice, okay? Cut that up, super simple. Um, I, I'll, I'll saute, I like sausage um, and some onions. And uh, um, and saute those with, um, I, I put a little uh, pavano. I, I go more the the, you know, his, uh, Latin route because I love those flavors, but you don't have to. Um, you know, simple salt, pepper, a little bit of dry mustard really goes a long way in a breakfast casserole. Uh, I don't understand why, but it does. It makes a, a great impact. Saute all that up, and all you do is you just put that on top of the bread that you put into a casserole dish, and be sure to, to line your dish um, or to, to oil it so that nothing sticks to it. And then all you do is you take, um, let's say, a dozen eggs. And you beat those, and I always put cream in my eggs. Um, it helps them smooth uh, quite a bit. And go ahead and put your salt, your pepper, any other spices that you want, and simply take that and pour it over your sausage or whatever meats that you use in your bread, and you want to do it in a way so that it comes up probably about 80%, 85% of the bread, and then you push all the rest of it into it, and then just simply take cheese and cover the top of it. Okay, Cover the top. Wrap it up and put it in the refrigerator. And wrap it with aluminum foil, okay, on the top of it. Because then you're just going to take that entire casserole dish the next morning, put it in the oven, um, uh, 350 for about 45 minutes. It's going to cook all those eggs and all those flavors are going to go all the way through all that bread that you put in the bottom of it. Take off the top for another 15 minutes and let it brown on the top. And you're set. You've got a beautiful breakfast. Wow, that sounds really good. <laughs> I might have to do that this year. Now, big question for me. I'm from Wisconsin, so what kind of cheese do you put on top? <laughs> I'll, uh, me, I like. A, I'll, I'll do a blend. I'll do a, a um, an orange and white. Um, t- typically, it's a Mexican blend, but I, I have found that you put like a. Sometimes I'll put a layer of mozzarella because it, it's so creamy. Um, it'll melt and just stay super smooth. But I'll still top it with some orange cheese, like a cheddar. Um, and which I imagine is what you would speak to your heart. <laughs> yes, for sure. All right, so we're going to end this section with a little fun, something you call dis or dat. It is the Christmas and holiday edition. So I'm going to throw you a bunch of questions. First answer that comes to your mind, um, just, just spit it out. You ready? Fire away. Here we go. What is the best Christmas present you've ever got? Ever got? Oh, my goodness gracious. You know, my kids, um, still some of my favorites are the ones that they used to make. I still have them, you know, especially in, in my closet. I still keep, like, um, my, my daughter, <laughs> I say two years ago, it's probably 12 years ago, <laughs> she made a game. Um, 
you know, is this the real John Rivers? <laughs> it was a board game that she did, and it was hilarious. Oh, I think we need to recreate that. <laughs> she would. She absolutely would. I still have it. I still have it. What is your favorite holiday tradition? Holiday tradition um, on Christmas Day, the family, my, our four of us, my wife and my two children, we, um, we, we protect the morning just for us before the rest of the you know, pre-COVID huge family would cascade into our lives. And that morning, we go through the routine. We always do um, the uh, stockings first. Okay, and then we open up gifts, and we do, we're one at a time, and we rotate, and we go, and everyone is, is a little bit different. But afterward, all right, my son, who's, what, 25 now? Goodness gracious. His gift that he gets every year is a big Lego set. You know, <laughs> we just went to Disney Springs last week to buy this year's Christmas gift Lego set. He will put his headphones on, you know, still to this day, and he will spend that entire day, you know, building the Empire Strikes Back, you know, you know, gift set while my daughter and I and um, sometimes mom will watch a watch a comedy <laughs> you know we just love Christmas shows we we love um, the family man I don't know if you've ever seen that Nicholas Cage it's well matter of fact we just watch it at Thanksgiving <laughs> we liked it so much but Elf is another big one and she and I just sit around all day long and we watch movies together and he's as happy as he can be and mom is, is doing her things and calling family and she'll come and join us too but that time before everybody else comes is special because it's, it's just us. So what is your funniest um, holiday memory ever? This is not a diss or that. I'm supposed to have two choices. <laughs> Very true. I'm trying to make it more complicated. My funniest one is actually my buddy. I can think of a lot of different ones over the years, but uh, we have a, a tradition on the Christmas Eve. That it's called Four Families, and for, gosh, probably 15 years, the, our four families would get together, and, and each one of the families had uh, one to two children, So, and they all grew up together. And uh, my buddy, and each each year, they would the meal would be at the different person's house, so it would rotate between the four. And um, so I was so proud of these turkeys that we were smoking probably 10 years ago. So I give him a turkey to serve along with the rest of the food that you know his family is making that night. So we arrive early and we're having our wine and, and I'm looking down and I gave him, I swear to God, it was like a monster bird, you know, it was like an ostrich. It was huge, probably 20, 24 pounds. And um, I'm looking at the platter and like, it's not that much meat. I'm like, wow, Tom, do you guys already eat a lot of meat? And he says, no, no. I said, where's the rest of the bird? He says, what are you talking about? This is everything. And I looked, I said, it was only white meat there. And I said, what about the dark meat? And he looks at me, he says, what dark meat? And I said, the legs and the thighs, he says, you're not supposed to eat that. <laughs> and I literally made him go outside into the trash can. And thank goodness he had it all still wrapped up and take the carcass out. And he grew up his entire life only eating the white meat of the turkey. I know. I know families like that. That's amazing. The best meat. I love the dark meat. You know, how do you feel? And I made him cut it up and he wouldn't eat it. But we did put it out that night. <laughs> do you still send out annual Christmas cards? You know, that's a point of contention. Um, uh, my beautiful wife, Monica, is not as enthusiastic about <laughs> the holidays as I am, and maybe that creates balance in the universe between the two. But um, we do, uh, typically, begrudgingly, um, we will go through that process. And I always choose a picture, a photograph throughout the year, and uh, we'll put it on there. And uh, this year I did give her a pass um, because of COVID-19, but uh, next year, I told her we are back in full swing. Um, everything comes back out, including the Christmas cards. One last question for you. What is the most annoying holiday song? Oh, God, that chipmunk one. <laughs> I hate that one. I love, I, I love Christmas songs. It's actually my ringtone on my phone. No, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, my gosh. If Chip doesn't know how to sing this year, he's out of the, out of the trio. <laughs> <laughs> too funny john you've been an amazing and inspirational guest on the show today and uh, along with you being an undeniable leader within our, our company and our industry i want to thank you for your level of caring for others it is noticed not only within our organization but the community and the hospitality sector at large um, a very merry christmas to you your family your loved ones and may god bless you in the year to come thank you skip what a pleasure it's been god bless you too and merry christmas
I hope you enjoyed today's show and had the opportunity to take away a message of inspiration and hope. It is these food heroes in our industry that need to be celebrated and recognized. And I don't say that only just because I work at Four Rivers. It is a fundamental thought process to persevere regardless of the challenges that we face. I want to wish all of you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, or whatever holiday you are currently celebrating. I will talk to you one last time this year, next Tuesday, to say farewell to 2020 and open the door with great glee to 2021, a year that will turn things around in our industry. I am positive of it. Well, you know what? I hear that Santa's making his list and he's about to check it twice. So I have to go see if I can hack into his user account just to make sure I'm on his good list. Rudolph123, I accept cookies, exclamation points. I love Mrs. Claus. I've got a few passwords to try. Any other suggestions? Let's see how secure his account really is. Well, it sounds like I've got quite a bit of work to do. So until next week, stay safe. Stay healthy and stay hungry, my friends. By popular demand this year, the Tech Chef has released its new Christmas album for the entire family to enjoy. Classics such as this medley featuring the Tech Chef and its backup choir. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Oh, jingle, jingle bells, bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride in a one-horse open sleigh. Hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun it is to ride. One horse open sleigh. Ho! Fa la 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. Fa la 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 la. Fa la 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 la. If you think you've never heard anything worse, thank John Rivers for requesting this original that is dear to the tech chef and plays into his childhood memories from Wisconsin and has been nominated for the Eurovision Contest. demand and the most requested song on this album Silent Night Just when you thought 2020 couldn't get any worse the tech chef is there for you with yet another original COVID Claws Christmas is here, there's a lack of cheer. Santa on his way with his eight reindeer. Bringing you gifts with his rapid speed. Making sure he distances at least six feet. Mask on his face with no disgrace. Seeing who is naughty and who's in his face. Yeah. His face. Yeah. His face. Yes, that's right. The tragedy you never thought could happen to make this year worse than it actually is, Christmas with the Tech Chef. Don't forget to order this special edition for your friends and family today. Then again, it is also perfect for your worst enemies. And for a limited time, 
you will receive free shipping. As a matter of fact, order right now and receive a free cassette copy of this soundtrack, which is the perfect gift for your parents while listening on their way to their holiday potluck. Just visit MyEarsAreBurningInPain.com or call 1-800-PLEASE-NO-MORE. That's 1-800-PLEASE-NO-MORE. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Bells on bobtails ring, making spirits bright. What fun it is.